This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and metal roofing, all of incomparable quality. Welcome to Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast for listeners who believe that residential real estate is the way to build wealth. Hi, I'm Kevin Kennedy, a working contractor and host of Your Valuable Home. Your Valuable Home is for homeowners and investors alike who want to acquire and improve real estate based upon educated decisions. And I'm Ron Milk, Your Valuable Home producer and co-host. Our weekly one-hour podcast is not about doing it yourself. It's about hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. And it's not about flipping. It's about buying and holding to build wealth. Homeowners and investors who strive to create wealth and financial freedom with real estate and avoid costly home improvement mistakes your valuable home is for you the project replay made redoing our kitchen and bath trouble free your horror stories have kept us from hiring the wrong contractors the college segments have taught us how to keep toxins out of our home what to look for in replacement windows how to borrow sensibly against home equity and more college teaches investors like me how to freshen up my rentals without spending a fortune their suggestions are great for roi it's time for your valuable home all right, so let's get into the replay here. Now we are going to a job that we, uh, Ron, we're, we're squeezing in. So it was a little bit of a situation. They had a fire and we're gonna explain in the replay what they're gonna be doing. And it's gonna go into the horror story. So we're gonna do a short replay on what they're doing. They're gonna explain the situation, tell them what they're doing and um, tell us what we're gonna be doing. And from there, we're gonna jump into the horror story so we can educate our listeners so it doesn't have it happen to them. So we have on the air, Mike and Michelle, they live in Montgomeryville, close mm-hmm. area for us. Uh, right. Cause I'm going to be doing the work and they had a little fire and, um, Hey guys, say hey, thanks for doing this. And, uh, why don't you explain your story? Okay. So, uh, about 10, 11 months ago, we had this fire. Um, basically, um, we had to, the house at the moment is gutted to the studs and we are in the process of a full home remodel. Um, being that everything's been gutted, um, we had the opportunity to remove some walls. Um, something that we dreamed of doing maybe a couple years down the line, not right now, but under the circumstances, uh, here we are. So um, we are in the process of getting our kitchen redone, um, as well as all of our bathrooms. Um, we're putting in a dog bath um, on the main level. Um, we made a couple switcheroos. We put our laundry room upstairs on the top level uh, outside of the bedroom area to make it more accessible, easier to do laundry. Um so yeah, lots of changes, lots of new windows, a couple new doors. Um, but yeah, all in all, it'll be a completely, essentially a, a new construction when it's when it's all said and done. Well, it could have been worse. Nobody got hurt in the fire, did they? No, no. Thankfully, no one was hurt. We all got out safely, including our wild animal, the dog we have. Um, but yeah, we all we all are okay. Um, but yeah, thankfully that was you know main thing. That's the main thing that's you know of most concern. And how long ago did all this happen to you? This was uh, last year, end of last year, uh, about 10 months. 10 months ago. Yeah, they've right. been out of the house. Okay. So they probably going on 11, I guess. It's almost 11 at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it has wow. been. And uh, yeah, she That's pretty devastating. So it's basically a whole house redo, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. The fire oh. was contained majority to the garage, attic, laundry room area, but the smoke um, was just throughout was pretty horrific. So unfortunately, with the smell, and the black walls, um, everything just unfortunately had to be removed and, you know, has to be redone. And that's what we're in the process of, of doing. 
So they had a little bit of an issue with the other contractor uh, doing the job. And uh, we got involved just to help them out because there was no way they were going to be able to get done. The uh, We're going to talk about it in the horror story. So but at least you're going to have a new kitchen, new flooring. I mean, pretty much everything's going to be new. And some of the windows, yep. what was nice about it is that the they had new windows prior to this that were replaced, uh, Michelle, what, five, six years ago? Not even. The windows uh, were about three years old. Ah, brand new, 20 brand new windows. All of them were brand new. Oh boy. Uh, so the, uh, what was the window manufacturer? Are they going to be able to cover they all were that? All Provia. Greatest window. We love them. Oh, good. Good. So, cause we have to be replaced. <laughs> and we're sticking with them. <laughs> I love to hear that. I really, really do. Uh, but wise choice. Very good choice. <laughs> and yeah, we're going to be doing Provia doors. We're going to be doing Provia windows, Provia siding. We're going to talk about that, uh, as it, it progresses the job. But right now we're, we're concentrating on getting them into the house as quick as possible because mm-hmm. of the situation. But we're going to talk about it in the horror story. So hang tight and we'll get right back with you. I kept Mike and Michelle are back on. Maybe it's just Mike to talk about the horror story, the reconstruction of their house, which is like a, a deconstruction at this point, right? Uh, that's what we're doing. We're actually deconstruction before we, uh, we start over again because the, the contractor never got a permit from the beginning. Oh, uh, township got involved and everything has been a disaster. We documented everything that was done. Uh, we're, we're going out of our way just because it's just heart-wrenching to see a family just waiting so long to get back into their house and the disruption. It's, it's like going into 11 months now, right? Yeah. So they're paying for, Mike, is insurance paying for you to stay someplace? Are you, is that, is that your dime? Yeah. So, um, yeah, our insurance company is paying uh, for us to stay in a rental home right now. Um, although it's maxed out at 12 months and yeah, the, the, the fire started October 23rd of last year and we have until October 22nd of this year, Exactly, uh, you know, one year to the day anniversary uh, to be out of this rental room and, and move back home, which is clearly not going to happen in time uh, just because these contractors have been dragging their feet and doing God knows what. But, uh, yeah, so we're, we're on a strict time right now. We're going to end up having to pay out of pocket to live wow. in the rental home a, a little bit longer. Adding insult to injury, right? Yep. So when th- this all started to transpire when you signed contracts with them, you met the guy, he came out, the contract he wrote, I, I believe there was a little bit of an issue with it. Could you explain that? Yeah. So clearly we've never been through anything like this before. So I, it was a couple of days after, um, we were still just sorting through what we could, you know, uh, you know, salvage essentially. But, um, and then this guy shows up at our door talking a great game and gives us his contract. Um, I mean, it was just a basic one paragraph contract. Um, he just said, Oh, we'll just use this just to get started. I was like, okay, well, that makes sense. We can, you know, I'll sign this and, yeah, they'll start working. But, yeah, we did initially sign a contract um, saying the bare minimum of just how much, basically just a dollar amount of how much it would cost to get us back in the house. Uh, so the dollar amount was there. So he didn't formally in Pennsylvania, he has to write up a, a legitimate contract. Of course, yeah. Uh, HICPA license and you on have there. to put a due date on it too, don't you? Yeah, start date, end yeah. date. It's, got, yeah. it's all going to be on there because the homeowners need to know this. Uh, there's got to be a payment schedule that's got to be applied because you just can't say, give me all the money. Up None front, of that we'll, happened. We'll get here. to you. Yeah. So I, I know you you gave him a large deposit. Uh, there was some work that was started, but all the work that was there, I mean, I can attest to this because I, I have the pictures and documentations of everything that was done was done incorrectly. And then the township inspector came out. Him and I went through everything again. He said, this has got to come out. You've got this problem, this problem. And he's just pointing. Out, and I said, I know all this. So uh, we've got uh, to get in there, rip everything out 
prep everything, reframe all the walls because the walls were, uh, it was a mess. I'd never seen frame. So like the inspector that. hadn't been out through the various stages of this other contractor doing this stuff? No, because they never had a permit. It never had a permit. So he didn't know he didn't trigger anything. Correct. Right. Right. That's Mike. So they, the township never knew about this because they never applied for the permit. Correct. Well, the, the contractors, um, the township clearly knew about the fire. And, and when we finally did talk to them three months later, they, they said, um, we, we've been waiting for a permit, but these guys, these contractors made it very clear that, um, and actually were very mad that we contacted the township, found out that they had never even submitted a permit application, but they were planning on doing all of the work without a permit. They were mad that you contract, contacted yep. the uh, township? They, yes, were they were very, very upset with us that we had to, that we got the township involved and now had to uh, hire in. So they're mad because you're protecting yourself, right? Covering yourself. Unbelievable. Yep. Yep. They were, they were very upset that, um, yeah, they, they were planning on doing the work underhandedly without a permit. And yeah, they were very, very upset when, when I called them because they were lying to us the whole time saying, oh yeah, we already submitted the permit application. We're okay. And then months goes by. And then we called the township wondering about this permit. And they're like, yeah, we never even received a permit application. So these guys were just outright lying to us. And they took a large sum of your money at this point, correct? Yeah, at this point, we had already, we handed over the initial installment of the insurance money. They said they absolutely needed that to get started. And so I, I signed it over to them. So now the, they got the money, they got it to place, they did some work that was in, they did some electric, so they did the, some plumbing. The first month, the first month they actually, I thought, was were doing well. They The very next day, they had a demolition crew at the house and, and the adjuster had people going through all of this, all of our belongings, itemizing everything so that we can get. Um, you know, our personal belongings money uh, from, from the insurance company. So that was fine. The first month went okay. And then it was after the first month, once it was completely demolished, and then they started doing, started showing up like here and there, like, like you know, just whenever they felt like it and, and doing work. And it wasn't until then um, they stopped working for a while. And we're like, what's going on? And then uh, we ended up calling the township and finding out about the permit. And that's when uh, and the township even threatened to put in a, a, a uh, work, uh, stop, stop work order. order on the house because yeah, they, because they were working on the house and the township knew and they were just waiting for us to, to reach out. And we finally did. And they're like, yeah, they never submitted a, a permit application. So please stop working on the house before we make it formal. So. Well, well, what's funny with it when, when you're doing, cause I do so many townships doing so much work. It, it's just when that fire had happened, if we did sign contracts and, and I said, this is the way we would work. Is that the first thing we need is an architect because they're, they're sure. removing bearing walls. Uh, are set up. So designers. this guy didn't have an architect involved either. Oh no, 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 <laughs> no. We had to do so much work where the house would have collapsed. Oh boy. Um, and when I got involved, I looked at, it, I said, we need to do some work quickly. And I said, cause the township's going to come in and they're going to say, well, they need to do all this additional work to make sure, cause what they did was partly done, but just from the top of everything I had to do, I had to rip everything else out from there, from the jack studs down because the jack studs only had a couple nails in it. And I tell, I was telling you, Mike, how if you had two toothpicks in your fingers and you squeeze them, what would happen? They would just bend and break. I, mm -hmm. We pulled them straight out. I just used my hands to pull jack studs out. So all the pressure was on one stud, the whole entire house. Now, thank God there was no drywall in there because of the weight. I was explaining to Mike, I said, when that weight is in, which is all the drywall, the furniture, the flooring, everything gets transposed to that post. And it all concentrates coming down. down the one. It's coming down. There's nothing below that. So the, the house would have collapsed over time because if you got a good snow load, all everything gets, it's like the game of Jenga. When you start pulling things out, everything gets delivered and transposed into one area where the weight's going to be. 
Mm-hmm. And I said, we have to fix this. And, and further that I got into it, because I, with me, I just rip everything out and redo it anyway. And we get a permit, mandatory, we get a permit for this. Oh, yeah. So we know what to do. We, I and start, an architect. Well, yeah. We, we, the architect's designed there to tell me what I need to build. Right. I'm not telling you what to build. And, you know, if the, the, the beam starts to fail, it's not the contractor's fault. And people go, why? Well, an architect draws it up and designs that load. Then the township building makes sure that what the architect drove is, is correct. correct. Yeah. Then I do the work. And then the inspector comes out to make sure that I did the work, work correctly. Makes sense. It's very simple. That's why you need to get a permit. So at, we started, I, I went right out there for him. I felt so bad. I started getting in there, ripping everything out, getting the framing done. I got my guys in there right away. And everything we started looking at was just done wrong. It was raw and everything from the, the plumbing to the mechanical, they left all the ductwork in there, which would, it's covered with smoke. So when you turn on the new ductwork, you would just have that nice fresh smoke, smoke smell from fire. So everything had to be ripped out. And then the work that they did that somewhat the homeowners paid for, I had to rip it all out and redo it. And the township came out and said, you can't do this. You can't do that. I said, I know we can't, we have to just rip it out. So we, the township's been great to work with, with this. And uh, I, I know the township pretty well, so they allowed us to jump in very quickly, right, Mike and Michelle? Did they let us jump in pretty quickly? Yeah, the township, um, they they apparently um, internally amongst themselves were cheering because they were so happy that we finally got rid of uh, these other contractors and they, they just couldn't believe that we even put up with these guys for so long. But that's, that's a different story as to why we did Right. Yeah. Do they do they end up on a on a, like a don't call list at the at the township? They can't do that. <laughs> well, yeah, they could, but they can't refer somebody. But they can tell you there's been problems with somebody. But they can't tell you what the problems are. No. Hmm. No, it's just Paul. It, it you've got to do it where it, it's nobody wants to be sued. So that's mm-hmm. why they can't mention names. They can't. We just would. Nobody wants to do that. Look, the show here just wants to help people out. So that when you do hire somebody. You get the right job. Exactly. And it's it's simple, but I'm telling Tell you. Tell people how it should be done right so they know when somebody's doing it or wrong. That's, how many contractors I what we do yeah. over the past 10 years that really think, you know, I'm the best. Hey, can I talk to you for five minutes? Five minutes, after two minutes talking to them, they're, wow, I didn't know that. That's a great way of doing it. You listen to the show. It, it's very simple. I'm giving you the best advice that somebody could possibly get. Because if you know how to do the job, it makes it easier. But the problem today is, it's all salesmen and subs. Now, Mike, you saw us working, Dave and I. Is Dave and I there every day doing the work? Absolutely. You're, it's it's just completely night and day comparing these guys when I can't tell you how many times, like, oh, yeah, we'll be there all day starting Monday next week. We'd show up. There wouldn't, they wouldn't be there. We'd try and contact them. We could not we could not get a hold of them. They wouldn't pick up our phone. They would not answer text messages or emails. Nothing. And then, oh, yeah, and then, yeah, it, and then we come, you know, you come in and take over and it's, your integrity is just paramount. It's not even like, I know that if you're, you're either most likely going to pick up the, the, uh, the phone or answer text messages in a few minutes, or if not, I know when you're available, you're going to, you're going to immediately contact me back. All right. So you're Thank now you. the contractor Thank of record on this house, correct? <laughs> yes, I am. Yeah, I okay. am. So, uh, yeah, we're just trying to, uh, make them whole again. Mm-hmm. So the township, since they know my work, they're letting me like say for the outside, uh, we're so busy that I just don't have time right now to get to the outside, but I'm just trying to get them hold to the inside and they'll let me get a CO if I can sign off that I'm really doing their siding because of- uh, Get a CO, get them back in there. Get them back in yeah. there. So that's what we're really shooting So you're going to get close to the October, October, October date? We are trying. Yeah, we are trying. Actually, uh, next week, we're going to be going back to get a couple more days in because uh, we've got to do some additional work. He did so much damage to this place. Uh, 
And Mike, the homeowner, is going to meet me there with the inspector to go over all this additional work that we've been doing. The inspector's telling us we got to get a few more things done. I'm like, we'll do whatever you need to do. That's what it is because of the damage that he created that I have to fix. What the worst part is, is that the homeowner paid all this money out and has to redo it again. That's the, the it, it's heart wrenching to see this, but we're going to get them whole as quick as possible. Uh, we're holding to a pretty good schedule. They gave me a time frame, and I am trying my best to get it done. And we're, we're looking good. We're, we're there. We're there. We're just, I'm trying. That's all I can say is I'm trying, but uh, we should be on schedule to do uh, insulation and drywall very soon. We're going to be starting inspections probably within 10 days uh, from now. So oh, get okay. okay. So you're moving right along. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's moving right along. Mike Michelle, do you think we're moving at a pretty good pace? And I, before you even answer that question, I said, this is not a, a way we run our job. As you know, when you hear the show, we start the job, we finish the job. Uh, but this is a squeezing job because I've got nine months still backlog of jobs that I already signed two years prior. So if my listeners are, or my customers are listening to the show, they're going to go, whoa, whoa, what'd you do? But I had to, it's a necessity. We had to get these people back in their house. Yeah, of course. I mean, so, this is a real, real bad story. Your kitchen's been there. It works fine. And we'll, we'll get to you. I, I feel bad about it, but I will get to you. I promise everybody that uh, I know our listeners for the future jobs we got coming up, but we had to get this done for the homeowners. But it was just a lot of work additional but it's doing it right. And now that the, per the permit's been done, it's applied for, uh, township's in there, they'll let us do the work, but we're looking to be on schedule as best as possible to get them back in the time frame that they wanted me to uh, so they can get moved in. So is there anything you could add to the story that you could give advice to our listeners so it doesn't have it happen to them? Well, after uh, you, you took over, um, I will tell you this. I, I wish... Uh, so... Here, here, here's how the, how the beginning of the end was back in July. We kept, it took them about five months to get the permit. And through that process, we were calling the township like every other week just to, you know, for a status update. So, because these guys kept saying, like the house sat idle for six months and they kept saying, oh, once we get the permit, we'll be in there and we'll have you in the house in two months. Well, whatever. Finally, July comes, the beginning of July comes, we get the permit and then they're like, we'll be in there Monday. Well, they don't show up. And then they say, all right, we'll be in there next Monday. They don't show up. And then, on the fourth Monday after the permit was already approved, we ended up firing them and they completely lost their minds and um, started bullying us, threatening us, being very vulgar. Um, and just, it just got really ugly. And I mean, it was, it really was, that's kind of why I hesitated. I was trying to give these guys the benefit of the doubt. Be like, Hey, we finally, maybe we'll get the permit. We'll finally get back to work and get us home. But it came very evident later on, especially now in hindsight, realizing these guys had no intentions of, of getting us back home. They were just there. They they kept asking us, when's, when are we getting our next installment? And I wasn't going to give it anyway, but luckily we never did. We never ended up giving any more money, but they had no intentions of ever restoring our home. They they just wanted the money. and they But were you gave me your insurance money, right? Yeah. And, th and they were in over their heads. You also missed the most important part, this new beam they put in. They, they didn't even support it. It was sitting on a piece of plywood. It wasn't even sitting on any a piece support. of plywood. The second, Seriously? The second, the second floor would have just collapsed. Yeah. It, it was horrible. And um, yeah, it, so they clearly ran over their head. They didn't have the experience to even do, to even restore the home. They didn't have the knowledge, the know-how, uh, let alone, yeah, <laughs> let alone the integrity. But um, they, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was just, it was just horrible all around. They, they, they were, it was very evident that they were there to just make steal our money and move on and just play it off. Like they, they didn't you know, try and play the victim. Like they didn't know what we were doing. And then, you know, that whatever. It, did you check references? Did you, Mike, did you check references? Real quick? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Go ahead, Michelle. I just want to add 
we gave them several opportunities throughout the month to just call it quick and just let's end it amicably. You go your way, we'll go ours and we'll figure things out. Um, if they felt like it was too much, you know, work for them to do, they didn't know what they were doing. Cause there were several times throughout the course of the month that things would come up where they didn't know. I asked about potentially making a vaulted ceiling in our family room and they didn't know how to do that. Um, just little things like that, that you would think a general contractor would be capable of doing um, to get rid of an attic area that was unused and put a vaulted ceiling and little things like that just kind of gave me a little bit of an uneasy feeling. Um, so I just said, forget about it. If you don't know how to do it, then let's not even go down that road. And don't, I don't want you to, you know, Google it and, you know, try to look on YouTube videos to figure out how to make vaulted ceilings in my family room. Like, let's just scrap that idea. So the moral of the story, I, if I would say, picking a contractor is do your research. You oh, definitely yeah. have to ask around. You have to find somebody reputable. Um, and I know that the township is not allowed to um, give you names, but when you mention a person's name and you see their eyes twinkle, you know you got the right guy. <laughs> so, so I guess they I twinkled. I, I guess uh, I <laughs> yeah, because they've got they know who's good and bad, right? <laughs> yeah, the township does. Yeah, yeah, they couldn't say for sure, but they definitely had a look when I mentioned your name that you were taking over our job and it was a huge smile and it was a huge positive reaction. No, thank you. Well, I'll tell you, we're both very sorry you had to go through this. This is, this is an incredible story. But we're going to have you back on to what, now that we're putting the puzzle together, I'd like to get back on uh, maybe a couple of weeks uh, when the project of our phase one of getting the inspections done. And uh, we could talk about how your life's been improving and getting a lot less stress that we've done the work. We've got the inspections, the township's letting us get you in and uh, we'll make everything happen for you. Sounds great. Yeah. Well, good yeah. luck to you. Good luck to you. And thanks for coming on and telling your story. Absolutely. All right. We'll talk soon. Okay. And listen, stick with us. Uh, we are wrapping up the four part series with the um, Department of Energy. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about wind energy, which is going to be a big, play a big role in how we power America going forward. So, very, very interesting segment coming up and um, very informative, and you'll enjoy it. Got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, Kev, we've talked many times about the importance of curb appeal and the value quality products add to exterior home improvements. Provia fiberglass entry doors and vinyl replacement windows add that value. And for huge impact, curb appeal, and value, there's Provia vinyl and polypropylene siding. Yep, the super polymer formulation of Provia siding reflects heat and protects against UV rays and solar heat buildup for lasting color and value. Provia siding comes in traditional, insulated, and decorative profiles, all with the look and texture of real wood. People often stop and ask me about my Provia Cedar Max siding. I've actually gotten siding jobs that way. Okay, so how about colors and styles? My customers love the extensive palette of popular colors, including dark and bold hues. New colors for 2023 include Miss Gray, Harvest Red, and Pine. And Provia offers a wide variety of styles from clapboard to Dutch lap, board and batten, and new Harbor Mill shingle and shake siding. Harbor Mill is reminiscent of traditional rough sawn shingle and staggered hand split cedar shake. Both profiles are modeled after genuine cedar pieces using highly accurate laser scanning to ensure all the detail and texture of real cedar wood grain. Harbor Mill siding was designed with the installer in mind, incorporating built-in features that aid in a more efficient, hassle-free installation. The lightweight rigid panels are easier to handle and include locks, guides, and marks for the installer. That makes for a quicker installation and beautiful curb appeal. 
Yup, and you can see it all and how the colors and styles work with Provia entry doors and vinyl replacement windows at Provia's fabulous website, provia.com backslash YVH. Check out Provia's design center on the website and experiment with their exterior home visualizer to see how all the different styles, colors of Provia doors, windows, siding, stone, and roofing work together. Once again, Provia delivers on its mission to serve by caring for details in ways others won't. Visualize the possibilities at Provia.com backslash YVH. Hey, Ron, it is time for the featured segment, and we are finishing up a great series with the Department of Energy. And who do we have coming on right now? Today, we're speaking with Patrick Gilman from the Wind Energy Technologies Office at the U.S. Department of Energy about the promise wind holds as an energy source for everyone, including homeowners. How Will Power America Going Forward is an exclusive series featuring subject experts from the U.S. Department of Energy. So let's get right into this. Patrick, welcome uh, to Your Valuable Home. Good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. What role does wind energy currently play in our nation's electricity consumption, and where do we see that headed? So we've made a lot of progress uh, in wind energy over the past uh, decade. Wind now accounts for about 10% of uh, electricity use in in the United States. Um, And for some context, that's up from you know, below 1% when I first started working on wind in, in 2008. Um, that also, that 10% uh, is enough power uh, to, to cover the electricity use of 43 million homes in the U.S. Um, wind energy is also a big industry. Uh, wind energy accounted for more than 20% of all of the new electricity capacity installed in the United States, second only to solar. Um, and that new capacity represents $12 billion of investment. Um, and that, you know, that investment uh, and the, the operating wind energy around the country are employing a lot of, a lot of people. Um, more than 125,000 Americans now work in wind energy, uh, in construction, in manufacturing, and uh, increasingly in operations and maintenance. So wind turbine technicians that keep turbines that are already uh, up and spinning, to keep them running, keep them in good working order. That's the second fastest growing job category in the U.S., according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Second fastest job category. So there are a lot more jobs going to be created as you go down the uh, down the pipe with wind, right? That's right. Okay. So for which regions of the country does wind hold the greatest potential? So historically, um, and this is intuitive, right? You figure that the places with, with the best wind uh, are the places with most wind energy potential, and we've seen that borne out. There's a swath of the country from, from Texas up to North, North Dakota that, that we call the wind belt, and um, there's huge uh, potential there and also huge growth that's been seen in, in wind there. Texas alone has more than 40 gigawatts of wind energy installed. That's almost a third of our nation's total. Um, but we also see wind expanding into new areas of the country. So, uh, for example, new new developments in wind turbine technology, like taller towers and larger rotors with longer blades um, that can capture more electricity in areas with lower wind speeds. Uh, could enable wind to expand into new places like the north and southeast. Um, and then we see offshore wind uh, just over the horizon in the U.S. 
as a, a major potential source of electricity. Um, there's more than 50 gigawatts of offshore wind uh, that are currently under development in the United States um, and that could play a really major role in supplying clean electricity in places like the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic um, and even on the West Coast in California where uh, areas where we have huge amounts of electricity demand but uh, not a ton of land or access to good land-based wind and solar resources. I guess that, that that would be true, too, in like the mid-Atlantic states and going into New England. I know about Texas. Yep. I know about Texas. And the thing that surprises me, Texas by far, by far, has the greatest number of uh, wind farms, I believe. Am I right about that? Yes. And which is surprising because it, it's an... Or- it's probably the top oil producing state in the country, right? So uh, it's interesting that they they got on this bandwagon and uh, are running are running with the ball now. So that's just a little aside, but um, it's it's stunned me. So um, which which other states currently? Uh, I think you mentioned the wind belt going up towards North North Dakota. Which are the largest? Which states have the largest share of their electricity from wind power now? In addition to Texas. Well, Texas on a on a you know an absolute basis in terms of the number of wind turbines, uh, the amount of capacity that's installed is by far the largest. But Texas isn't the largest in terms of the share of electricity that they generate from wind. Hmm. They're um, we have two states in the U.S. now that generate more than 50% of their electricity from wind, and that's Iowa, which which last year generated about 60% of its, all of its electricity wow. from wind power, uh, and South Dakota, um, which also generates over 50%. And then there's five other states, um, all in the wind belt again, that generate more than, than 30% of their electricity. So uh, there's a bunch of different states in the in the middle of the country that are producing a, a large share of their power from wind power. That's amazing. And 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 that it's just the beginning now, isn't it? Yeah. It 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 really is. We're seeing, you know, with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act last year, um, we're seeing a lot of of interest. We're seeing forecasts of, of wind energy deployment that, that the industry or the analysts in the industry develop. Uh, they've ticked up significantly um, so we could be seeing, you know, we have seen historically between five and 10 gigawatts of wind installed every year in the United States. Um, we could see that number going up to 15 or even 20 gigawatts a year by the end of the decade. How about that? How, how about this? How does wind power rank among all available forms of power, nuclear, solar, et cetera, et cetera, including the cost to implement, maintain, and carbon reduction? How does it rank? So wind energy is among the, the cheapest new sources of electricity uh, when looked at on a life cycle basis. And um, one of the advantages of wind, like solar, is that you know you pay for the plant up front and you have to pay a little bit to maintain it over time, but you're not buying fuel. Um, and fuel is the largest uh, cost um, associated with, with you know traditional fossil fuel power plants, and it's the largest driver of electricity prices. So once um, once you install a wind or solar plant, your operating costs are very low. And that means the cost to generate each additional kilowatt hour of electricity is very low. Um, but wind is also 
uh, one of the lowest uh, emissions um, in terms of both carbon and air pollution uh, sources of electricity, even when you're looking at it from a life cycle basis. So we hear a lot, okay, well, wind doesn't, you're not burning fossil fuels, but you have to, you know, you have to mine the iron that goes into the steel that goes into the, that goes into the turbine and you have to drive those turbines by trucks from factories to sites. And, and all of that obviously generates uh, carbon emissions, generates air pollution, has impacts on the environment. But when you look at that uh, compared with the, you know, 30 years of generation that you'll get out of a wind farm um, on a life cycle basis, a wind energy is, is one of, if not the lowest source of, you know, emissions on a life cycle basis of any generation technology. A wind turbine that's installed today will typically pay back all of the carbon um, in, that was, you know, uh, emitted in its production, uh, manufacturing, and transportation, just in terms of the uh, the avoided uh, carbon that it that carbon that it displaces from the existing grid, um, will pay back that carbon in less than a year. Hmm. That's that's amazing. That's an amazing uh, stat. Uh, talk to me about the difference between utility scale, land based wind and distributed wind power, two terms that I kept coming across and all the stuff uh, that I got from uh, your office to read to get ready for this, in terms of the size and, and what they're powering. Yeah, so when we talk about wind power, we, we talk about um, two broad categories. One is utility scale, which means, you know, if you're thinking about, if you're driving through uh, Kansas and you look up and you see a big wind farm with very large turbines, you know, 20 or 30 or 50 of them, um, that's utility scale wind. That wind is being connected to a transmission line, and typically that energy is being transmitted long distances for customers to use in load centers. Um, so that wind power in Kansas might be going to Kansas City or it might be going to Denver or, um, or another load center. So that's utility scale wind. When we talk about distributed wind, we're talking about wind uh, wind turbines that are generating electricity that's used very locally or even on site to displace um, the need of either you know a local distribution utility uh, or um, even a factory or a farm or a home uh, to offset its electricity and, and distributed wind tur- distributed wind can use the same utility scale wind turbine that are used in uh, utility scale wind farms. So, mm-hmm. you know, a three megawatt GE wind turbine could be used either in a utility scale wind farm, or it could be used at a factory to power that factory's output. Um, but we also see uh, much smaller wind turbines that are designed specifically for uh, use to offset um, the power needs of a, of a farm or a home that are much smaller, a uh, hundred kilowatts maybe, or even for if you were installing a wind turbine at your home down in a, a few, you know, 10 or 15 kilowatts. So, I mean, people like out in the Midwest, out in the Midwest, you see vast, vast, vast areas of farmland. And um, that would make a lot of sense, especially in that, what you call a wind belt that goes up to North Dakota, right? For uh, farmers to power yep. their, to power their operations with wind. Yeah. Uh, you know, one thing about distributed wind power, it's, it's there's some, some aspects of it's more challenging than say, rooftop solar where you know if you're in an urban neighborhood or a suburban neighborhood and you've got a roof that's and you've got sun um 
you know, sun, solar might pencil for you. Wind is a little bit more complicated, right? You need more land uh, and you need that land to be away from, you know, big obstructions like uh, lots of buildings or uh, lots of tree cover. And you need to be able to, you need to have enough space to be able to put a tall enough tower to get your turbine above whatever obstructions are around, around you. And so that uh, naturally makes wind a better option um, in rural areas like in, you know, on farms where there is that land, where there is that space. Um, so yeah, I think for, for farmers in windy areas that, that have significant power demand, wind is a great option that they can look into. Okay. How about homeowners, um, homeowners in, um, that, that don't have farms that just, you know, like in developments, does that work with wind? It really depends on where you are. Um, I think, you know, typically what we see the greatest opportunity for wind is in places uh, where, again, there's, there's an, you know, where parcel sizes, if you've got enough land so that you can put up a tall tower uh, and it's not going to be right on top of your neighbors and um, you can get, you know, again, that, that turbine up above the, the local kind of obstructions that would block the wind, uh, you know, it can be it can be good for those homes. We typically see those homes more in kind of exurban, you know, at the edges of urban areas or in in rural areas anyway. So even if you're not a farmer per se, uh, you'd still need a fair about a fair amount of land, and you'd still need good wind um, in order to put up uh, a wind turbine and expect to generate. Um, you know, enough energy to really offset your needs or to save money on your electricity costs. So a homeowner would see a cost savings then if they transition to small wind turbines? It, it really depends on, on where you are. I think okay. there's a couple considerations here that, that homeowners need to think about. One is, um, uh, you know, understanding whether your site is good for wind is a pretty complicated uh pretty complicated problem and so we'd really encourage folks to talk with uh, reputable small wind turbine manufacturers and installers to help get a sense of whether their uh, whether their location is going to be a good one for wind mm-hmm. and then uh, it's really important that that folks looking into small wind use uh, turbines that are certified uh, to, to national or international standards for quality and performance so that they know that they're going to get what they pay for. Okay. Again, well, that, really encourage homeowners to, to work with a, a manufacturer or a reputable installer on, on those things. All right. Let's transition from land-based turbines to water. Uh, I think um, your office is, uh, there's a big focus on, on, um, on, uh, on wind turbines in the ocean and maybe even lakes, uh, Great Lakes. Offshore wind holds quite a lot of potential to be a major source of the country's clean energy, as I understand it. Where do we currently stand with offshore wind energy in the United States? So offshore wind is still in its uh, infancy in the U.S. We have a total of seven offshore wind turbines deployed, uh, uh, both sort of in two small uh, installations, pilot-scale wind farms, uh, one with five turbines off of uh, Block Island, Rhode Island, and one off of uh, Virginia Beach uh, in Virginia. Hmm, Um, But there's a lot of uh, momentum towards um, additional offshore wind. The next two, much larger, the first really big commercial offshore wind farms are currently being installed uh, right now. 
um, one uh, South Fork wind, which will interconnect into uh, Long Island, New York, and one Vineyard wind, which will interconnect into Massachusetts and being is being built south of of Martha's Vineyard as we speak. Okay, so so it's it's an act a big active project right now. That's right, okay. and there's uh, those projects total are about one gigawatt. There's about fifty more gigawatts of offshore wind that are currently under development in the U.S. And I think you're working towards a goal of deploying what thirty gigawatts of new offshore wind energy by 2030. That's only about six short, uh, short years from now. Are you on pace to do that? So that's right. The, the the goal is 30 gigawatts of deployed offshore wind by 2030. Um, I think uh, that's we recognize that goal is going to be a real challenge to meet, um, but we're certainly within striking distance. Uh, we've got, as I mentioned, a lot. The first couple of projects under construction. There's a bunch uh, of other projects that are teed up and being um, approved uh, by the by the administration by the Bureau of Offshore. Energy Management BOEM within the Department of Interior that regulates um, offshore wind development. They're issuing approvals for those projects, um, and so we're we're moving forward. And I think uh, if we continue to maintain momentum, we'll we could get there. And there's another goal, I believe, for 2050, isn't there? Yeah. So when we established the 30 gigawatt goal, we did some analysis that suggested that if we're able to achieve that, we could put the U.S. on a pathway to achieve. Uh, more than 100 gigawatts of, of offshore wind energy in the U.S. by 2050. And just give us an idea of the scale. How many homes would that power? So 30, the 30 gigawatt goal, um, if we were able to achieve that, uh, that offshore wind could power more than 10 million American homes. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Uh, how many homes... Uh, is, there, is there potential... Yeah, let's get back to the jobs now. How many additional jobs, say all this happens, how many additional jobs would that create? Yeah, so for, for we did some analysis last year that suggested that if we are able to achieve the 30 gigawatt goal, we could create tens of thousands of jobs um, across the country, both in uh, construction of, of the offshore wind farms themselves, but also in um the, the manufacturing of offshore wind turbines and the provision of providing services to, to those construction providers flowing all the way down to the folks who are, you know, uh, housing and feeding uh, the offshore wind workers that are uh, building offshore wind farms. Okay. Um, those benefits could be really, really significant. It as we sounds that way. Sounds that way. How about the potential for uh, carbon reduction? I think, I, you know, I think that, the, the potential for carbon reduction is, is pretty similar. That um, the reason why uh, states in the you know one of the major reasons why states in the Northeast, in the Mid Atlantic, and then in uh, California, especially on the West Coast, are looking at offshore wind uh, is again because it uh, you know really offers them the the potential to meet their climate objectives without using a ton of land uh, that is really difficult for them to develop. Uh, onshore. So a state like Massachusetts that doesn't have the, the space available to build um, lots and lots of, of land-based wind farms uh, can use the waters off of its coasts to, to generate lots of clean electricity 
um, and also to, to build a new industry that will help them revitalize uh, working waterfronts and bring in new jobs to the to, to areas that have been un, you know that are uh, economically depressed or have become economically depressed over the past couple of decades. Okay, so um, going forward. Where will additional offshore wind turbines be placed? Will they, do you have any plans to place any in the Great Lakes, for instance, or off the coast of California? So the, um, you know, the federal government, we, the Bureau of Offshore Wind Energy Management and or Offshore Energy Management in the Department of the Interior is it regulates, uh, you know, offshore wind leasing and and uh, permitting on the outer, outer continental shelf, which is basically the, the legal term for the, the ocean that's, um, you know, offshore of, of, of the states. And they have issued uh, a bunch of leases up and down the, the East Coast and are starting to lease uh, areas in uh, California. They had their first lease, lease auction in California this past year. They just had a lease auction in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and so, you know, we see development, uh, you know, expanding in all of those areas. Uh, we have uh, the Department of Energy has some funding in the demonstration project that w- that could uh, move forward in in uh, Lake Erie. Uh-huh. Um, but other than that, it, there's, uh, you know, there's there's potential, there's certainly potential for development in the Great Lakes. But it's a at a much earlier stage, and a uh, big reason for that is because uh, the Great Lakes states all have really good uh, land-based uh, wind and solar resources that they can draw from. Um, so, you know, we're certainly looking at the Great Lakes. Uh, we're thinking about what it would take to help uh, states in the Great Lakes develop offshore wind. Um, but it's it's very early stages. Okay. All right. Big question for me is how will all this wind power be integrated integrated into the grid, or I should say grids, because there are really three grids, aren't there? There's the east coast, the eastern grid, the western grid, and then there's Texas has their own grid. How is it all going to come together? Yeah, so this is this is a really important question, um, and it's one on which we've made a tremendous amount of progress. When I first started working at the Department of Energy back in 2008. Uh, we were having discussions with uh, utilities um, about the potential for wind energy to get to 20%. And at the time, that seemed like an absolutely wild idea. Um, and there were a lot of people who told us that it was basically impossible. We're at 10% now. We're on pace to get at least close to 20% by 2030. And... Uh, as we've gone along, uh, system operators and utilities have gotten more and more comfortable operating their grids with a large amount of, of wind power. So in the studies that um, you know, we've, we've studied grids of up to, you know, say, uh, 80% um, uh, variable renewable energy, so wind and solar, and you know, find that those systems, it's possible to operate them reliably and cost-effectively. And we see already in places like uh, the Southwest Power Pool, that the, mark, the electricity market that runs up and down much of the wind belt, uh, they have seen wind penetration of well over 50% on an instantaneous and, and even you know, hourly basis. So people are already managing grids 
with a large percentage of wind power. And wind energy technology is getting better over time at providing the services, not just the energy, but also sort of the ancillary services that the grid needs to continue to operate reliably. And so uh, grid operators are increasingly counting on wind to provide those services. And we've reached a point where, you know, wind is now in, uh, is, is on a net basis providing benefits to the grid and not just imposing challenges. Gotcha. Here's a question. I think uh, there's been a lot of uh, press about the environmental impact of, uh, of turbine, wind turbines and how are you going about mitigating the environmental impact of, say, offshore wind turbines? Yeah, so that that's obviously been an issue that's been of, of great concern to folks. Um, we have been working on uh, solutions to help mitigate the environmental effects of, of wind energy for decades. Um, you know, going back to looking at uh, interactions between wind and, and birds and, and bats and then in the offshore context, uh, with marine mammals. And in all of those cases, you know, we're working to uh, fund the science that helps us better understand what those impacts actually are and help um, put those impacts into context. We're uh, working with our partners across the federal government um, and then stakeholders in industry and in the environmental community and academia to develop uh, solutions better, you know, technologies that can either, you know, or ways of operating wind, wind, wind farms and installing them that are less impactful. So for example, in the case of, of offshore wind, uh, lots of concern about its uh, potential impact on endangered whales, uh, yes, particularly yeah. North Atlantic right whales. Yep. Um, we just announced a notice of intent to do some funding, uh, to provide funding to explore and develop uh, low noise installation solutions. The big impact there potentially is, is that the noise associated with construction is extremely loud and could harm um, you know, these endangered whales. And, and so we're exploring ways uh, to improve the, the technologies for installing offshore wind to make that process quieter and make it less impactful. And that's just one example. Okay. What this sounds like there's a lot of money going in. What volume investment is driving all this? Yeah, so I mentioned that um, that just just for the wind energy that was installed last year, uh, that those projects represented a billion dollar investment made by by the industry, and that that doesn't count um, the money that's uh, flowing from operating projects into, uh, you know, in lease payments to landowners, uh, in taxes to local communities, um, and the, you know, wages paid to, to folks who are working in, in wind. And so uh, it's become a really, really big business. Um, you know, in, in the offshore wind context, um, we just developing the supply chain necessary to sort of support the 30 gigawatt target that we talked about. Um, that's a, that's an investment, uh, on the order of, you know, $20 billion maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's, there's a huge amount of interest and there's a huge amount of capital that's flowing into the sector right now because of the opportunity. Who benefits the most from, from, uh, offshore wind do, uh, is it people who are benefit, who are located with, 
the residents are in coastal areas or doesn't it matter? There's, I think there's, there's multiple sort of tiers of benefits here. I mean, obviously, um, folks in the states that are procuring offshore wind will see significant benefits in terms of uh, reduced climate pollution, reduced air pollution. So the, the less um, that offshore wind will displace uh, fossil fuel generation um, and reduce uh, you know, nitrous oxides, uh, other criteria, air pollution, um, and that has a significant health impact for the people living in those areas. So that, like offshore wind, like other forms of clean generation, of the, can really improve the, the quality of the air, and that brings direct benefits to, to those communities. Offshore wind also can bring significant benefits in terms of economic development. Um, we've seen significant uh, economic decline in, in port communities in the United States uh, as, you know, as, as as time has gone on and offshore wind um, represents an opportunity for reinvestment to really revitalize those ports, uh, get people working in them again and increase the amount of um, money flowing into those communities and, and the benefits associated with that. Okay. I believe I read as well that uh, floating, floating offshore wind design will play a huge role in how, power market going forward can you uh, can you get into that a little bit yeah so um there's two basic kinds of offshore wind technology one is what we call fixed bottom offshore wind which is effectively a turbine that is connected directly to the seafloor uh, by a foundation either a, a lattice structure or in most cases in the u.s that's called a monopile which is basically a big steel pipe that's driven into the seafloor that the turbine is built on top of but Two-thirds of the water in the United States, two-thirds of our uh, U.S. waters are too deep uh, for that fixed-bottom technology. So in those cases, um, where offshore wind is built, it will be built on floating platforms, similar to sort of the floating uh, structures that exist in deep water oil and gas uh, today. And so uh, we see a lot of interest um, in floating, uh, particularly um you know, in the Gulf of Maine, where, again, those waters are too deep for, for fixed bottom offshore wind, and then off of the West Coast, where the ocean gets deep very quickly as you move off offshore, um, and where, you know, California has a huge, huge appetite for clean energy, um, but no shallow waters. And so to the extent that we're going to see offshore wind develop there, it's all going to be floating. All going to be floating in California. Okay. Isn't there another aim here, and that's to make the U.S. a world leader in the design and manufacturing of floating offshore wind technology? Yeah. So we announced uh, an initiative called the Floating Offshore Wind Shot. Um, it's part of a broader range of uh, what we're calling energy earth shots at the Department of Energy, which are sort of big, ambitious efforts to bring all the tools of the federal government to bear in, in developing these new energy technologies. And floating offshore wind is one of those. We've had a story uh, repeated multiple times in the U.S. where we have uh, been the drivers of innovation in a new energy technology, but then have lost sort of the, the manufacturing uh, and the production of that technology overseas. And so our aim with floating offshore wind is to make sure that that doesn't happen, that as we're developing floating offshore wind, we have 
an opportunity today, given that sort of how nascent the technology is globally, to not only be a leader in terms of developing the technology and not only be a leader in terms of building it off of our shores, but also to capture uh, the manufacturing, the design, and all of the services, that the, the full value chain that goes into floating offshore wind technology, keep that here so that Americans are, are, are reaping the maximum benefit from, the, from that investment. Absolutely. Keep the jobs here, too. Keep all the jobs here. It sounds like mass, right. massive job creation on down the road here. Um, in the future, what will be the mix of offshore wind technology versus land-based distributed wind? So if we're thinking about, you know, transitioning to a, a low carbon or a carbon free economy over the next couple of decades, that implies a huge amount of growth in uh, clean energy, including, um, you know, wind and solar and, and geothermal and other sources. And, and we anticipate that wind will play a really major role in that. In some of the, the studies that we've done and studies that others have done, uh, Land-based and offshore wind together provide up to half of the electricity that's used in the United States. Um, most of that uh, will likely be on land, both because land-based wind tends to be cheaper. It's just more expensive working in the oceans. Uh, and also because um, offshore wind is, you know, there's, there's, we see less offshore wind going forward, but they'll both be a really significant contributor, particularly offshore wind in, in areas where I mentioned before, where there's just not that much land available for for development. Um, distributed wind, we think, also plays a really important role in, in a more sort of niche basis, helping at kind of the community and the uh, individual level for um, folks to sort of take control of their own energy transition and um, over time, as we better integrate uh, wind and solar and batteries together, um, enable folks to really uh, be their own source of resilience and reliability uh, so that they can, um, you know, become more independent from, from the grid. Okay. We got to wrap it up, but I've got a few quick more, uh, a few more quick questions. Uh, I just did this. Um, I switched to a clean energy source through my through my utility, uh, Pico in Pennsylvania. And um, can customers now, can utility customers now tap into organizations like Clean Choice Energy and Inspire Clean Energy? And, uh, and there are a number of other ones around the country. Is that happening? Yeah, I, I think that that's happening in a lot of places. Um, and, you know, folks can look into whether they can do that in two ways. Uh, you know, I also, uh, through my local utility, um, subscribe to, you know, all of my electricity comes from wind through a, a voluntary subscription program like, like you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that's also happening more and more across the country are um, subscription-based community solar programs where effectively you buy into a, a community um, solar facility and you agree to purchase the power from that facility and that offsets uh, your electricity bill. So I would encourage folks to, to, to look into both of those options where they are. Are there any government incentives now for switching to, uh, to clean energy? Yeah. So uh, one feature, one major feature of the Inflation Reduction Act is the extension and expansion of a bunch of different um, 
tax breaks associated with investment in and production of uh, of uh, clean energy. Um, there's a bunch of those incentives that are available for consumers. So, for example, uh, the IRA extended the small wind incentives, so you can get a 30% tax credit for investing in a small wind uh, technology if you're a, a re- that's that's for use at your primary resident if you're a homeowner. Just by way of example. Okay. Uh, and are there incentives now for homeowners who are able to install residential wind turbines? I would imagine so, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, as I just mentioned, that, that one of the things in the IRA extends this a 30% tax credit for investing in, in residential wind turbines um, would really encourage folks, and in some cases it's a requirement uh, to a, to be eligible for those tax credits that, that those wind turbines be certified to international or national performance quality standards. Um, but yes, those incentives are available and, and folks can go and take advantage of them. Okay, we got to leave it there. We've been speaking with Patrick Gilman from the Wind Energy Technologies Office at the U.S. Department of Energy. Patrick, this has been fascinating, and I don't think it would be overstatement to say uh, this has all been about the huge potential for wind power in this country, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Well, how can uh, how really can I... appreciate your your having us on? Oh no, this has been fascinating, and I don't think I don't think enough people understood, which is why we wanted to do this whole series. Understood the um, what what the DOE is doing in not only wind, solar, uh, nuclear, and, um, and and hydrogen. It's just fascinating. So I urge everybody if you, if you listen to this series once, go back and listen to it again because you probably missed some things. But how can our how can our listeners learn more? Is there like a newsletter that uh, they can subscribe to in your office? Yeah, I'd, I'd really encourage folks to visit our website, wind.energy.gov. And uh, there you can find out what we're doing, find out more information about wind energy generally, and uh, subscribe to our newsletter, um, which will keep folks up to date on what's happening in, in uh, our work, but also in, in wind energy more broadly. Patrick, thank you very much for sharing everything you're doing at the uh, in your area there at the DOE with our with the listeners to your valuable home. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Yep, yeah, pleasure, pleasure. We'll do it again sometime. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Sounds good. Thanks. Tree doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone and metal roofing. Products made with latest technology and honest old world craftsmanship. The Provia way. That's this week's podcast. Your Valuable Home comes to you every week on Apple Podcasts and all other popular podcast directories. If you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story, email me at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. That's kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price.